Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. It's time for another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, as we gear up for the 2023 Wimbledon Championships just a few days away. First up on today's show, a special interview with longtime sportscaster, current host of MLB Tonight on MLB Network, Adnan Burke. Adnan Burke joins the show, a huge tennis fan, a huge Roger Federer fan, and someone that got into the game through his mother watching the Wimbledon Championships Boris Boom Boom Becker winning the title. We talk about his tennis fandom, his appreciation for Roger Federer, the current state of the game as a Canadian, what he thinks of the Canadian landscape of young and up-and-coming players, and much more with Adnan Burke. It's a fun chat for a first-time guest on the show. And then Kenny Ducey returns to the show, tennis gambling extraordinaire. Find him at Action Network. It covers his works featured in the New York Times. He also is a regular on the Tennis Bets Gambling Show. We break down the Wimbledon odds for both the men and women. Novak Djokovic is a clear favorite. Who, if anybody, could stand in his way? Alcaraz's success on the Queens Club vaulted him up to the number two spot. And whether Iga Sviantek deserves the favorite spot in the women's game, or whether Sabalenka or Rabakina can win another title. All that and more with Kenny Ducey and Adnan Burke on this week's show. It's Tennis Channel Inside In, and it starts right now. All right, now joining us on Tennis Channel Inside In, first time appearance on this show. We like to widen the net. You know, anybody that's interested in tennis and has a cool backstory in the sports world, we're, we're happy to have uh, a veteran sportscaster well-established in the game. He's worked for and work, currently works for currently a, a, a slew of networks here, MLB Network, NHL Network. He's been at the zone. He's got his own podcast, Cinephile, where he talks about the current news and notes in the cinema and entertainment world. Ednan Burke, welcome to the show. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, Mitch. I appreciate it, man. I, uh, I'm so happy to be able to talk tennis with somebody who uh, knows it, loves it as much as I do. So I was I was flattered by the ask. You dropped Steve Weissman in your initial request to me. Love Weissman. So I'm in. Yeah, it was. Uh, I had to do it. I had to bring out the heavy hitters to get you involved. But you know, <laughs> Steve, Steve's it's a good name that. drop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll start with this backstory here. I know you're a tennis fan and I know the the initial stuff that you can research on yourself, you know, growing up in Canada with Pakistani immigrants. But you didn't really play it. I guess you played ba- basketball and soccer. Where did the tennis love? Where did that core interest in the game come from? Yeah, you know, honestly, it stemmed from my mom, Mitch. She um, was born in Pakistan, but emigrated to England when she was 10. So, you know, growing up in England, all my my mom's family is still in England to this day. So, you know, she really passed on that love of Wimbledon to me. And I remember being seven years old, watching Wimbledon with her and a young 17-year-old Boris Becker was just mm-hmm. wowing everybody and uh, fell in love with Becker, fell in love with the game, fell in love with Wimbledon specifically. So, yeah, it stemmed from my mom. She didn't really play, but I, I, I quickly started playing and it was... One of the great things about tennis, as you know, is you just need a ball and a racket, just hit the ball against a concrete wall, and that's good enough for me. So I would do that, and I eventually found a few friends to play with, but never played at any appreciable level. Just literally played for fun recreation. I still play to this day once a week. It's just uh, just fun to get out there and hit a ball rather than run on a treadmill. So, yeah, yeah. it stemmed from my mom, and specifically Wimbledon. Those, those 80s matches, Becker specifically, was incredible watching him just flying all over the court. I watched the uh, Alex Gibney documentary, you know, Boom Boom versus the World, yeah. Boris Becker on Apple Plus, and it, 
it brought back so many memories, man. I, uh, I mean, he's got a fascinating life and I, I feel sorry for him. Some of the mistakes he's made and um, I'm glad he's back on his feet. Cause I, uh, I idolized him as a kid, man. He, I remember meeting Dirk Nowitzki when I covered the NBA and I said to him, you know, who's a bigger deal to you as a German athlete, Katarina Vitter, Boris Becker. He's like, Oh my God, Boris. He's like, forget about it. Like he's, and, and watching that documentary, you realize just how powerful and popular he was and still is like in Germany, there's nothing bigger than Becker. And um, it was really, really cool to watch him in those eighties matches. He ushered in a new era, and it's fascinating, too. We talk about phenoms, and he gets lost in the shuffle that what he did at 17. And and as a physical freak, how powerful he was in a sport that didn't have anyone really like that ever in the game before. 100%. It's one of the biggest things I miss about tennis today, Mitch, is the serve and volley. Like, I I don't probably never come back now. The guys just hang on the baseline and just hit incredible ground strokes. But, like, I just miss the idea of Becker just boom, boom, serve, and coming in one volley diving all over the place. It was such, it's just such fun tennis to watch like him and Stefan Edberg going toe to toe and obviously great stories with him and Macaro as well. But I, I really just miss the, the servant volley, you know, Tim Henman doing that, the Henman's Hill yeah. back in England was great. So it's, I just love that style of tennis. I just think, you know, it's obviously quick points. It's attacking, but I just think it's fun. It's, it's aesthetically pleasing. It's aggressive. It's risky, you know, quicker points. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I miss a lot of that stuff. And yeah, it was just, like you said, it was a different era and a different style of tennis. What's shocking to me too is, you know, I always think him was one of the great Wimbledon champions, and he is because he won it three times, but he also lost it four times. Like, it's shocking to me. He actually lost more Wimbledon finals than he won, three and four, and yet I think of him as a three-time champion. It's just, it's crazy. But six majors overall, pretty impressive. Without Pete Sampras there, taking a few, and not just the finals, but along the way, it was tough. And it's interesting you brought up Wimbledon because that has changed so much just in your lifetime, how the yeah. style is different. Servant value with Becker, but... How they how the courts play. I talk to ex-pros quite a bit, and they're just like, man, it's not the same. It's such a different game. They don't say it in a way that it's negative, but it's just the sense that the balls literally just bounce way higher, and it is slower than what they were used to. Yeah, it's a silly observation, too, but I always love, like, next week we're going to be watching Wimbledon, and I, I always love the first couple of days because it's all green like it's all truly yeah. grass and then like after three days it's all brown because obviously they're running all over that car like i just yeah. it just always bothers me aesthetically plays can we just go back to the green but yeah it, it's a different style of game it is fascinating too to to make the observation that i don't think many non-tennis fans have in the sports world that just how they are athletic to a point where they might even be some would say and i would even argue it well the most well-rounded athletes in the world you talk about you know, it just in the French Open, there's reports of guys losing five, six pounds playing a five hour tennis match. I mean, what they're asked to oh. do. And you have an appreciation that most don't that it's a, it's athleticism, it's conditioning on a whole nother level. Yeah. Like when you often hear about best conditioned athletes, you know, a lot of people say boxers. And I get that, you know, just moving and sticking and moving and dance all the time. Obviously, I love boxing, did it to zone. You hear some people mention hockey players again, being Canadian, they hear a lot of votes for hockey because, again, the strength, the agility, yeah. the flexibility. But I'm with you on tennis, man. Like those those epic matches. And it doesn't have to be, you know, John Isner and Mahout. It can just be, as you said, just a regular four-set match in a really hot weather at the Australian Open. Like you're you're baking. And it's it's such a great mental game. Like that's that's part of the greatness of tennis, as you know, is it's not just physically grueling, but mentally taxing. You really do have to believe in yourself. And it's um it, the competitive will is is amazing. Those were the three. I mean, you named my top three well-rounded athletes, tennis, boxing, <laughs> hockey. It's those three. So we're on the same wavelength there. Well, I know, I know your main guy in, in history. It doesn't have to, yeah. you don't have to go too far from your Twitter feed to see that you were on Federer early and often you've actually hung on to the goat, you know, yeah. longer than most going down with the ship. But I mean, I guess that's the easiest question. What was it about Roger that drew you to him at an early point and then made you say, all right, I'm along. This is my guy. I'm along for the whole ride. 
I think what I found, Mitch, was just the way he would obliterate opponents to me was just so incredible. Like it, it didn't even seem like a fair fight when he started winning majors in 03 and 04 and just in bushels, you know, just, just collecting them so easily. And it was really the fluidity of his game. You know, it was it was not only the fact he was crushing them, but he was crushing them in such a gentlemanly manner. Like, you know, Roger Federer would just rip your heart out, but he seemed to do it like in the most classiest manner possible. And that, that was what stood up to me about Federer was like, wow, he just boat raced this guy. And yet, you know, didn't even really seem to break a sweat and didn't seem overly emotional about it. You know, later in his career, you'd see more of Roger's emotions. Um, you know, you never forget the losses as well. You know, when he lost to Rafa at the Aussie Open, just started crying. Oh, this is so hard. And started crying. And when, when Rafa was like, it's okay, Roger, you know, you're going to get more of these. Like he was, it was amazing because he seemed like this, I wouldn't say machine-like, but almost a cyborg, the way he was destroying everybody. And then once he let you in and you saw the vulnerability, you said, oh my God, this is actually a human being. And he loves and cares and wants to win as much as anybody, just because he's not screaming and ranting and raving like McEnroe or grunting like Nadal. He wants to win as much as anybody. And I said, that's even more impressive to me. He's as competitive as anyone, but he does it in such a, a gentlemanly manner. And, and the number one word I would always use to describe Federer, both on the field and off, is, of course, elegance. And the, the elegance of his shot making, the precision of his strokes, it just always seemed so pinpoint. I said, he's just like a craftsman out there. You know, he's just so accurate in that forehand and the serve. And I remember I would talk to Marty Fish about it. And I said, you know, his, his serve is really underrated. He goes, absolutely. Because nobody mentions Roger's serve. But like when it was rolling, it was like, oh, my God. It was a, a thing of beauty the way he could move guys around, the, the, the spin he would get on it as well. And yeah. always unflappable. You know, never, never, never really seemed to be out of it. But different. Like it, it, I once called uh, Yvonne Lendl phlegmatic, which I just wanted to say because it's a great word. But Roger was like, Roger's not stoic. But he was smooth, you know, silky smooth. And really, when he needed to dig down, he got come on. Like then, then the emotion would come on, like, oh my God, like, yeah, Federer's he's in this as much as anybody. That's German. Yeah. Yeah. But generally speaking, he would keep it suppressed and would only let it come out when he wanted to. And um, I mean, it, Mitch, it's honestly one of my favorite sports memories ever was that Aussie Open when he beat Nadal. Cause it was like I I, I still struggled to, to comprehend it. Cause at that point, everyone's like, Roth is better, Roth is 2017. When yeah. he won it in five sets. Yeah. Um, and it was like, at that point, I was like, ah, oh, Roger's done. You know, he's his mid threes. He'd had the injuries now. I'm like, yeah, Rafa's beating him. And like that match, I remember getting up at 3.40 a.m. without an alarm clock. Like I was I was ready to go for this yeah, one. Yeah. And uh, I remember watching it. I don't know about you. It's, it's tough for me to rewatch the whole tennis match, but I rewatched that fifth set. Once he won five straight games, mm -hmm. ended up winning. I was like, what? once Roger flipped the switch, it was just wow. incredible to me. I remember that last point, you remember, because they weren't sure. Nadal challenged it. So there was kind of anticlimactic. He hit it, you had to wait. And then you saw the emotions like, ah. Yeah. And then Fowler's like, he's done it. Yeah. Done it. I'm like, oh, it was like one of the happiest moments of my life because I said, this guy's an all time great champion. Everyone thought he was washed up and he did it again against his greatest rival in a major. It was incredible. That match in particular. And I'm on the West Coast, so I just didn't sleep. So that's his <laughs> quote right there. Yeah. They, uh, you know, they were both coming into that. Nadal was damaged from the year before. Federer was like the 17th seed and both guys yeah. came in. You thought that's the funniest part looking back is you thought this was it for both of them. And then right. Federer wins two more after that and it all <laughs> keeps going. It was that one rally at the 4-3 game that wouldn't end. I know he won yeah. five straight to end, but it was a rally that ended with a back end up the line. That was, you know, yes, he got right. pessimistic over time. And then at that rally was when I think a lot of us said he can actually do this. Like it's, it's there for the taking. 
Yeah, and it was always so upsetting to me because Nadal's forehand would give go right to Roger's backhand, his weakness. So I was like, God, this just isn't a good matchup for Roger every time. Right when he hit that, and something also so pure about that one-handed backhand of Roger when he could hit it and just hit it on the nose like that, it was awesome to see. Yeah, we were at the practice court at Indian Wells that year, and he was just ripping backhands. And there were people that followed his whole career that probably traveled from nation to nation to see him. They were saying like, he's found something here, and then he beat it all like four times that year, won Wimbledon, yeah. and just kept it going. And, uh, you know, I just think for Federer, the statesman-like quality, there's never been a better representative of their sport in my lifetime. I don't know how far back we can go with that, but he just represented the game. And I think at his purest sense, and then he loves winning more than he hates losing. And that's kind of weird to say, especially in certain cultures, but he just loved being out there. And, you know, I'm with you in the sense that he never showed a lot when he was dominating, but something weird happened when he did struggle that we clung on more as like diehard Federer fans. We were like, he's vulnerable. Uh, we don't know how long it's going to last. It lasted way longer than we thought, but just seeing him out there and struggle kind of humanized him in a way we didn't really think was possible early. Oh yeah. I remember watching with the U S open. I forget the year now, but it was against Djokovic in the final. And I think he lost in four sets. And I remember there was like, you know, a couple of Serbian guys nearby. And so it's like, God, these guys could be more obnoxious, but, but after as they turned, they're like, great match. Great. Like we, we love Roger too. Like Roger's our second favorite player. I'm like, yeah, I, of course, everyone loves Roger Federer. How could you not love Roger Federer? But it was certainly frustrating. And again, you focus now on the loss. Cause I thought no one ever touched 20. I'm like, well, he's the greatest ever. And that's over. Now I'm like, Man, that Wimbledon 2019, I'm mm. like, he had Djokovic, like two match points. I'm like, that, it still mm. keeps me up at night. So I'm like, that, that would have been one more major, that would have been one more Wimbledon. Like, that's, that would help the head to head record with Djokovic. And, it, and it's funny because people will try to mock, as you said, I'm still hanging on for dear life to the goat label. I, I, I've now altered it a bit. L. John Wertheim agrees with me on this, at least, because he's like, you know, it's a, it's a tough argument to make. He's still the best ever. And I said, well, hang on a second. There's a, there's a few things to this. One, if you're just going by majors, then obviously he's not the best ever. But nobody just went by the majors. As you know, as a tennis aficionado, Rod Labor did not win the most majors ever, but he's in the top five conversation ever. And if, like, you know, you, no. if you're just going by majors, then that, that's a different argument. Then we could just go by, you know, most Stanley Cups. Army Richard's the best player ever. Like, it doesn't work that way. So, yes, what's happened is this generation has been more focused on majors and therefore Jokic and Al Federer train themselves more in that area. So I get that. Uh, Tiger, obviously, in golf, more on majors. If you ask Nicholas Palmer, those guys weren't as fixated on majors. You can go by overall wins. You can go by longevity. You can go by the era in which you played. You know, I'll try to make the excuse that Federer was older when those guys were younger. But, of course, when Federer was dominating, Sampras and Agassi were getting older. But I, I will I will close with this point, and it kind of goes to what we're saying. If you look at legacy and influence on the game, Roger Federer has inspired more people to pick up a tennis racket, I think, than anybody. Roger Federer made yeah. tennis a bigger event in our generation, our lifetime. He's done as much for the sport than anybody ever. So I think in that example, you go, okay, well, who the hell won the most majors? Who cares? This guy, I could ask anybody about Roger Federer. They all know who he is, and they all know he's a class A individual. And I remember reading the, the great book by, uh, I forget the name now, New York Times writer uh, Wallace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Clearly, yeah, yeah. He was great. And I read Chris and... Um, like he's got one story in there, but Federer like taking a tour of the, the Nike offices in, in Oregon. And after they're driving away, he's like, oh, shoot, I got to go back. And they thought like he forgot his phone or something. And he had to go back just to go thank some people that, that he forgot to thank. And he's like, this guy's unbelievable. Like he's and, and he clearly goes, he goes, I can't tell you how many guys have interviewed because it's the relationship with athletes is you simply ask questions. They answer when they leave because Federer would actually take an interest in you. Like, so how you doing? What, what's up with your brother-in-law? Whatever happened with that book you're writing? He goes, like, it, it's so unusual what an anomaly is. And yeah. of course it goes to his parents, Robert. And then uh, there's such great people and uh, obviously America and he's got great kids. And it's just like, as a family man, the guy's the best. 
I'm excited to see what the next step for him is. He looked pretty sharp coming out there at uh, how, you know, coming into that next stage. And I can kind of end with this. I mean, the Hall of Fame discussion, like he's up for, I think, 2027. That'd yeah. be the same year as Serena. I don't know if Newport, <laughs> I don't know if the city of Newport can handle it. So I've heard rumblings that maybe because it was just the Labor Cup match, they can get him in a year earlier to stagger it. But yeah, we're gonna have the dam open for Hall of Famers because these guys won all, these guys and girls won all the majors that it's been kind of dry for candidates recently, but yeah, hitters going to be descending into Rhode Island in the tennis world soon. I'm glad you mentioned that, Mitch, because it is never too early to get my uh, tickets there to Rhode Island. Because <laughs> as you know, working in Connecticut for nine years, one of the first things I did is somebody told me the Tennis Hall of Fame. Of course, I got to go. So I only went to Newport a couple of times. Uh, the beach wasn't crazy for the kids. A lot of rocks. I, we were for some reason kind of cold, but of course I went to the Tennis Hall of Fame. And the biggest thing was I was so happy they had grass courts, but I was wearing flip-flops that day and it still bothers me. I said, oh God, I want to play the grass court. So that still needs to happen. And it's it, honestly, the, one of the joys of my life, the people I've met, and I've met Wayne Gretzky and Tiger Woods and Mike Trout and you name it, I have so many great athletes. But of course, I've never met Federer. And um, between now you, Weissman, L. John Wertheim, Marty Fish, I feel like I have enough connections now that someone is going to get me a handshake and a picture so hall of fame whether it's 2026 or 2027 i will be there i'll be camping out we're looking for 10 seconds with roger i think i think i mean fingers crossed i'm not i'm not gonna put the car before the horse i'll never maybe yeah. somehow i can pull enough swings that this could happen i'll never say i have that kind of pull but if i did and and i love this conversation you're the best but if I got you in front of my mom, I don't think I'd ever be allowed in the house again. So I'm going to have to play that card first. Uh, I'll, what I'll do is I'll be there. I'll just superimpose a picture of me and better yeah. shaking hands together. But but you are right. I thought about that. People have said, oh, you're going to be there for the Hall of Fame. I said, oh, of course. But I was like, you and I both know Newport's a small place. So um, I'm going to have to get there very early. People will be camping out for Roger. People will be coming from Basel. It's going to be unbelievable. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. More with Ed Nunberg here on Tennis Channel Inside. And well, in that post-Federer world, are you still keeping tabs on how the game's developing? We have this new generational struggle. Djokovic is still there setting records on the men's side, but Carlos Alcaraz got to number one, got a major title. Some of these Americans, some of these Canadians even are stepping up. Like what's what's your take and assessment on the landscape of tennis in 20? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Canadians because uh, I went to the US Open last year, was fortunate to see Shapovalov and uh, my six-year-old son, Shaz, so I hope to get playing tennis soon. He still says to me, hey, remember, remember when we saw Shapo? We're going to see Chapo again. I'm like, we're going to see Chapo, buddy. I probably will see FAA. We're going to see Chapo. We're going to support all of our great Canadians. Um, I'm always a little fearful because I'll never forget seeing Jeannie Bouchard in the Wimbledon final going, here we go. Like, Canadians are about to dominate. And then unfortunately, things have not gone Jeannie's way. Terrific commentator, by the way, Tennis Channel. Love seeing her when she's with you guys. But I see Bianca Andrescu, and I feel good. And, and I definitely feel good about both the Canadian men that I mentioned. And um, 
it's great for Canadian tennis, man. I'm sure you know. I mean, being from Toronto, the Rogers Cup, when it's in Toronto or the one in Montreal, like it would always draw well. People love tennis in Canada. It's always been very supportive of, of tennis. So I hope that the Canadian tennis guys and ladies can be strong. But it does feel a little odd now because Rafa, we don't know how much more he has left. I, I don't know. I mean, I think he's going to try to play the U.S. Open, but I really don't know. I mean, maybe this is it. Maybe one more French Open. And Djokovic isn't slowing down. But it was fun to watch that Djokovic Alcaraz match. I was texting Steve. I go, this is unbelievable. You got the match of the year on Tennis Channel. Like it was 8 a.m. I was locked in. And then I, I never understood, by the way, this is a separate conversation probably, but it's like two sets. Then it goes to NBC. Then it goes to the Peacock. I'm like, hey, I'm sticking with Tennis Channel. I started with Tennis Channel. I'm going to end with Tennis Channel. I'm not going to flip channels over now. I'm not going to be some fair weather fan. I'm supporting the guys who had it. But that match in particular, okay, strap in. As again, we can talk about all the sports, and I'm a huge sports fan, but when tennis is at its best, good luck topping that. You're not yep. going to be Djokovic, Alcaraz, French Open, and then the cramps come in and you go, ah, oh, crap, there we go. I thought this thing's done. So it's, I feel like it's inevitable that Alcaraz will start to get to Djokovic, but honestly, Mitch, I, I don't know when it's going to happen. Like, it might be another year. Like, I was like, this is the moment. Passing yeah. the torch, Alcaraz will get him. Then I'm like, hmm, Djokovic might still add a three, four, five more majors to his total. It's crazy. It's the natural order of sports. The young guys come up and push the old guys or girls out. But yeah, yeah we're in uncharted territory because we have this guy that's not slowing down. And we do have the advantages of modern medicine. And the motivation is what gets me, right? Like if you look at history of tennis, even players just kind of tap out when they get to early 30s. And it's happened with, you know, Borg, Borg had that block. Sampras even set all the records, didn't have anything else to prove, walked out. But here's Djokovic still going. I think this generation... Coming up, though, it's going to be it's going to be interesting when the dam opens up when there isn't a Djokovic. And I think yeah. we have, you know, uh, I won't say it'll go full uh, slam four different slam winners, but I think we'll have to see some guys sharing. And, you know, that that's kind of what it was. I mean, Macro and Connors only won seven, eight slams apiece. So I think yeah. we might get to those numbers for a few. Well, that's a great point, though, and I want your opinion on that. Like, don't you feel yeah. like when people discuss the greatest players of all time, you can't just go by majors, right? You have to. Huh. I almost feel like you have to go by era and say, okay, that was the best of this era. That's the best Sampras of this era. Agassi were the first generation to be like we're prioritizing all majors, and even Andre didn't play everything. But right. Sampras was really the first one. It's like I'm chasing the major record. This is what I want. I mean, the guy that I mean, if you go historically, the the guy that you can't even compare is Borg because what yeah. he did in such a short time, he deserves to be high because. <laughs> I think his title total would have been a lot higher if he kept going, but yeah, it's, it is era specific because even Rod Laver, it's hard to put into context what he did at the time he did. Yeah, it's you're right. It's almost an impossible conversation to do, but speaking of Agassi, I did want to mention, I mean, one of the greatest books ever, his oh. book opened phenomenal. And I remember waiting at a bookstore in Toronto. I don't think I've ever done this before or after, because I realized my lesson, like this probably isn't worth it, but I waited two hours yeah. just to shake his hand and get an autograph. And all I want to tell him was that match against Blake at the U.S. Open was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. So I'm like, I just want to tell him that. I don't know why this is so important to me. I'm waiting two hours with a 27-year-old man. So I go up there, <laughs> he signed how many books? And I go, Andre, I just want to tell you, that match against Blake was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. He signs, he goes, it's in there. And just <laughs> <through> the book. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I expected. I expected to go. Oh, thank you so much, man. Yeah, it was, it was a dream for me as well. He's like, it's in there. I'm like, okay, First well, thanks. Never tell me that. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, saw him and Steffi at, at the Vegas Golden Knights game. I was surprised they <laughs> drinking out of the cup after. They're they're diehard fans. Uh, I, I do want to wrap with this. This has been a great chat at Nenberg, uh talking on Tennis Channel Inside In. The sports and movie connection, because I know you have the podcast where you go in and out of all the entertainment news. You do movies, TV, you're criticizing things, you're talking about what you love. And and now that you're in the big George Foreman doc as an actor yourself, <laughs> I have to throw that in there. But 
I want to know if there's going to be more of a tennis tie-in. We've seen the Challengers movie coming out. We've seen a new show on Amazon Prime. I've, I'm a sports movie junkie myself. Tennis has never really nailed it. So I'm hoping that that gets to be, you know, and maybe you can shed some light on why that might have been a trouble to be not a great tennis movie out there. Yeah, it's a great question. Like when people tell me tennis movies, I'm like, you know, I'm sadly thinking of Wimbledon with Paul Bettany sure. and uh, Kirsten sure. Dunst. Uh, there's a great tennis scene in the movie Strangers on a Train, which I love, the great Hitchcock movie where they're going back and forth. And it's really well cut the way Hitchcock did it. But you're right. We never really had that great tennis movie. And you especially would have thought in Europe, right? You would have thought there was some mm. European movie, some British film about a champion. But, you know, we'll get an Eddie the Eagle movie before we get a Boris Becker biopic. So figure that out. But hopefully it'll happen at some point. I once told Wertheim because I interviewed him on my podcast um, when his book came out, one of his other books he'd written. And I said, listen, you've got to do like a Holy Trinity series. I said, you got to do a Federer book and a Dow book, a joke book. It's going to be like 400 pages each. Like just go really in depth. And then you can make that into a documentary with that for Tennis Tale. Like you wrote Strokes of Genius, which is great. The book about the greatest match ever, Federer and Nadal. Although I argue always the Federer erotic match the next year to me was just as incredible. 2009 people don't yeah. know. And, and, and 07 was a great Federer Nadal match. Like I, maybe I'm just partial because 08 fed loss, but I'm telling you, 07, 09, we'll that's still great matches. I mean, that book is great and Wertheim's amazing, but if Federer would have won, you'd probably have a different reaction to like, I got this the greatest <laughs> book match ever. But it was unfortunate how it went down. But yeah, the uh the, the light, by the way, it still pisses me off, Mitch. As you know, like the light that was they couldn't see anything by the end. Like I know you couldn't just suspend playing. I'm not using that as an excuse, but it was unfortunate. But it did feel epic and the rain delays and all the rest. I mean, it was an insane match. Yeah, it was uh it was a tough one, and we know that the camera made it even seem lighter than it was. But yes. no, I, I think I think tennis is in a good place, and I'm just hoping that you know there's been more crossover appeal. Um, you know, we've seen some personality. Not everyone can be as elegant as Federer, and I'm not just saying that because yeah. Nick Kyrgios was in the Wimbledon final last year, but <laughs> we've got some personalities out, so that's a good thing. Um, Adnan Burke, this was a blast. We'll have to do this again. Thanks for carving out some time into your busy schedule. Uh, what we got, we got MLB network going on all summer. So between baseball and tennis, there are no yeah. dog dates of summer, in my opinion. No, I completely agree. And everyone always says, oh, you know, June and July, good time to take vacation. I'm like, are you not? So I'm like, no, baseball is going right to the all-star break. And we've got Wimbledon. Like, I don't take any yeah. time off. And then August, September, like, oh, well, Labor Day weekend, get away. I go, no, I'm watching yeah. tennis. What the hell's wrong with you? So I, I'm with you, man. My summer is one of my favorite times to watch sports. I, I, I'll take February off. That's the month. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, there's not much going on. And, and just to finish the point about tennis and the conditioning of the athletes, like, just look at that schedule, right? The tennis schedule goes year round. They take one month off. That's it. Other than that, they're always playing tennis. It's such a grind. And I have such respect for people who cover the sport like yourself. So I really appreciate it. Dude, I, I've done so many interviews, so many podcasts. No one's ever asked me to come talk tennis. So I was I was really appreciative that you reached out to me. And uh, I'm sorry I was a little bit late today, but hopefully we'll do it again. Perfect. Uh, Adnan and Burke, thanks for coming on the show. We'll get to the Steve Weissman stories next time you're on. <laughs> stuff. Yeah, I, I've got more than a few in the holster. So we'll get to those next time. I'll, I'll have that for, you know, not blackmail, but just stuff I can use to advance myself. But no, Adnan Burke, thanks again for coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. This was great, Mitch. Great questions. I really appreciate you uh, leaning in all the Federer stuff. We'll definitely talk again soon. Huge thanks to Adnan Burke. A pleasure to chat with him. I've been a fan of his for quite some time and uh, knows his stuff about tennis. So always good to see it's very interesting when you reach out to these people and say, hey, let's talk about tennis. And they're like, no one's ever asked me that. But Adnan was a pleasure and uh, hope to uh, 
Ted again soon in the future. Maybe at Roger Federer's Hall of Fame. Probably a little before that, but hopefully then as well. So thanks to Adnan Burke. And now we go to Kenny Ducey. We're going to talk tennis gambling in the market heading into Wimbledon. The championships start in just a few days for the All England Club. We break down the men's game and how Novak Djokovic is going for his fifth Wimbledon title in a row for events played. Third straight Grand Slam if he can do it. Can Alcaraz or somebody else stand in his way? What does the women's game look like? And if Iga could get her first Wimbledon title, or whether Rabakina will go two for two in the last two years, Sabalenka lurking, Coco Goff. Let's talk to Kenny Ducey now on Tennis Channel Inside It. All right, now with us on Tennis Channel Inside and back again, it's Grand Slam season, so we got to get this guy on, Kenny Ducey. You can find him on Action Network, the New York Times on occasion, covers, uh, he's knee-deep in, in tennis. Had to get some sleep after the Yankees had a perfect game last night, but Kenny, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, one of the most improbable uh, events, feats I've ever seen in sports. Uh, that was that was ridiculous, but no, uh, it's good to be with you, Mitch. I am really looking forward to Wimbledon. It's obviously... Uh, one of the best times of year to be a tennis fan. The summer, the summer here is just—it's spectacular. You've got North American mm-hmm. hardcourt swing and uh, Wimbledon as well. But uh, something just—some about the acoustics at Wimbledon, man. Something about that ball, you know, just the, the, the silence from the crowd and uh, the way that ball sounds off the strings. It's just a magical, magical uh, time. Just a short window of a season, and that's going to segue into where we are. With both the men and the women's game, the draw comes out tomorrow. One to get ahead of what we're going to expect to see and what we might be surprised by at Wimbledon. And starting with the men's side, you got to lead with the prohibitive favorite. Novak Djokovic on a lot of books is in the minus 155 and 165 range. He's won the last four Wimbledons. The stats are just staggering. 28 straight match wins, 39 straight wins on center court. Kenny, it's a weird situation because he comes in riding high with the French Open title. Calendar Slam is in play. I mentioned all the Wimbledons he won, yet this is such a short season. He's not playing a lead up yet again. There does feel like there's players that are making strides on grass. The question is, who, if anyone, can challenge this guy? And maybe last week we kind of got our answer with Carlos Alcaraz winning Queens Club. He's the second favorite right now. Clearly, no one even close. But do you see that as uh, how it should be? Do you see that as the market reflecting current results? What do you think about the landscape? Djokovic prohibitive favorite now, Carras, in that number two spot. Not really. I, I don't, I mean, I think obviously, yes, Carlos should be the number two favorite. I, I am selling this line movement that we've seen. I mean, we saw Djokovic, I believe, out at minus 175 or minus 180. Then Carlos won Queens. Now he's down, Novak's down to, I, I thought I thought it was as low as minus 150 yesterday. I think that's a really solid price for Djokovic. I mean, look, I, I again agree that Alcaraz is probably the likeliest player outside of Djokovic. But you know, are we really going to be buying stock, buying all this stock just based on one Queens Club win? I mean, yes, his game works for this surface, but he still needs to first of all, his only Grand Slam, right? His path to that Grand Slam was not really going to be as arduous. It's going to be if he needs to beat Novak Djokovic. We saw at Roland Garros. That if Djokovic stands in his way, it's not just a sure thing. It's not a, a, an assumption. Like I thought, Carlos is going to smoke Novak on clay. So clearly, it's not a, a just a, a, a you know what what is it a concluded what's the word I'm I'm searching You're, for it a conclu- foregone conclusion foregone conclusion yeah. not a foregone conclusion that Carlos Alcaraz is going to win if he faces Novak Djokovic. But I mean, even the U.S. Open run, he got to face Casper Ruud and French mm-hmm. Tiafo uh, in in the the final and the semi, and then. You know, the Yannick Sinner match obviously took a lot out of him, but 
um, you know, it, it has potential to be a lot tougher here, especially because but, he's, not, he's not really familiar with the with the grass courts. Yeah. Do you think I mean, he got the one seed and that's another whole you know debate. I mean, he is the number one ranked player in the world. Wimbledon had the right to switch it. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. One and two, you're on different sides. You beat who's in front of you. And that's what he did at Queens Club. Again, not the hardest path, but that also illustrates, Kenny, that like we said, some of these heavy hitters either aren't playing these grass court players with experience either aren't playing Wimbledon or aren't coming in with a lot of good fitness, the Kyrgios's, the Berrettini's players that would be threats. I think that's part of it because in Alcaraz's case, while I agree with you know pretty much everything you just said, the cramping wouldn't be an issue on grass. So that's one thing where you would think, okay, that's not going to happen again because of how short the points are. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very true. It's not a very physically demanding surface. But yeah, I mean, that's why this is such a strange year because Berrettini and Kyrgios are the two guys that faced uh, Djokovic in the final most recently, took a set off of him, and both looked very poised to win a Wimbledon quite soon uh, because Kyrgios, obviously, I would say when all three are healthy, Kyrgios, Berrettini, and Djokovic still, I would say still are top three players on grass. Carlos, you could probably... You might be able to slide him in at four, but then when you also subtract Rafa, that's why the odds look so strange. Yes, exactly. last week, and when you looked at the odds last week to win Wimbledon, Andy Murray was a top five favorite. Andy Murray. Uh, Andy Murray, yeah. who has only won titles down at the Challenger Tour this year. I, no disrespect to the man whatsoever, but to, to say that Andy Murray could win Wimbledon is, is outrageous. And now I know the field is sort of changing a little bit. Obviously, Jan Leonard Struff dropping out is very interesting. He was one of the more informed grass court players, but... Um, it, it really is a wide open Wimbledon this year, which is why I think while Djokovic winning, I think, is a foregone conclusion, you could certainly make a case for some first time semifinalists. I mean, Sebastian Corda was uh, was a, a hold away from being a quarter finalist two years ago in his debut here at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. I could certainly see him winning uh, enough matches to make the semis. And, you know, you have the, the Russian players back this year as well, which is going to be an interesting you know mix or an interesting twist here because. Obviously, Djokovic didn't have to deal with Medvedev or Hatchinoff or Rublev last year, but I, I still really don't see a lot of big players. I mean, Yannick Sinner has yeah. yet to prove it at a Grand Slam. Carlos proved that he hasn't proven that he can beat Djokovic at a Grand Slam. And I know that the nerves, you know, the, the, I think the nerves are really the, the the central cause of the cramping. So it it's a weird field. It's a weird field of favorites. Um, but I mean, hey, this is an opportunity for someone like Porta or Taylor Fritz or uh, even Yannick Sinner to make their first real imprint at a Grand Slam, and we've all, we've also seen with Casper Ruud, it doesn't matter what the road is, and this is this pains me to say, but it doesn't matter who you beat if you can say, hey, I was a Grand Slam semifinalist, I was a Grand Slam finalist. There is always, always a possibility that you can do it again in the future. You, you know, you can't do it until you do it. I mean, once you do it, you've done it, and now you yeah. can do it again. So that's that's how it sort of might break at Wimbledon. And Rude also proved you can write your season by just the great result in the Grand Slam, which he did this year. It's going to be fun. And I, and I think for the men's side, if you're going to find a player, and it's hard to bet against Djokovic and pick against him in a match, but you're going to need to play, I would think maybe, Kenny, a certain way. You're going to have to have some power. You're going to have to be one of these big hitters that's going to have a chance. Center taking two sets last year. Some of these Americans, though, and I always have to segue to them, but there might be some potential there with Corda, as you mentioned, loses the... Alcaraz in the, in the Queens Club semis, not the best day for him, but still an impressive run there. Tiafo's into the top 10 now. Taylor Fritz was a couple of points away from getting to the semis to play Kyrgios in last year's Wimbledon, that match against Rafa. So I do think the Americans, you know, and I would also say that if, if 
any of these Americans are going to break through, Wimbledon would be the grand slam for them based on how they play, but also the opportunity that we just mentioned. Yeah, I think it's shocking, really. I mean, it's shocking to see Sebastian Gorda has better odds for Wimbledon than Taylor Fritz, considering Fritz was, you know, one of the favorite, really one of the uh, long-term or, or I guess future favorites to win the U.S. Open. I mean, he's in, I think, the top five or top six, if you look at the, you know, the, the distant odds for the future tournaments. So that is that is pretty surprising. But you mentioned that, I mean, yeah, the, obviously American tennis is all about power. It's all about the big serve. Francis Yafo certainly brings that as well. I mean, he's down at, at 60 to one, which I think is kind of crazy. Mm. His slice is second to none. I mean, he he can play on this surface. His movement's very good, which will help him. But, um, you know, once again, it's it's all about, you know, who who, who are you really going to be beating on? You know, can you step to, if you get Djokovic or Alcaraz draw, are you going to be able to, you know, step to any of the, either of those guys? I don't know if he can. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Taylor Fritz is the interesting one because we, it, it's, we're sort of exhausted at this point. We're excited that there's new Americans to, to sort of get excited about and the pressure is not on Taylor Fritz. I think that's actually going to help Fritz quite a bit here at Wimbledon. I mean, the target's certainly going to be on his back after he blew the quarterfinals to Rafa. I mean, obviously who could, who could forget, uh, you know, who, who could blame him? It's, it's Rafa on the doll and, and Rafa played as Nick Curious said at break point, the best tennis he's ever seen to beat Taylor Fritz in that match. But I, you know, Fritz has all the tools. He's won two grass court titles before. Sebastian Corda has won zero grass court titles before. Francis Tiafo has won zero grass court titles before. Taylor Fritz certainly has a, just as good a chance to win this yeah. as anybody. And uh, the, the thing with Taylor Fritz is that he's played, you know, he, he's played Novak Djokovic at a grand slam. He's pushed Novak Djokovic at a grand slam, even though Djokovic was injured. He's pushed mm -hmm. Rafa at a grand slam. He's won a Masters 1000. So I do feel like he might come into this tournament with a little more confidence. And once again, I don't like to make too many excuses before I start to say, boy, a player just can't do it. Yeah. But I will say, you know, this Rundula matchup was tough for him at the French Open. Also, Clay was tough for him. The U.S. Open, I, I think, you know, he caught just he had a bad match against Brandon Holt. I think a lot of pressure was on him. And also it was a very windy atmosphere. And uh, in Australia, I mean, again, who, who could blame him? He was he was playing Those like, a road game. Know, thousands <laughs> yeah. of screaming Aussies who may be the craziest people in the world. And Alexi Poffrin's not a bad player. And that was also yeah. a very close match. Uh -huh. So like, I don't know. I think th this could be different at Wimbledon. I think he could, mm -hmm. uh, eventually the draw is going to break right for Taylor and he's going to have a big result. And once yeah. again, like we were just saying, then he's going to do it. And then he's going to be yeah. able to do it in the future. And he's got a guy in his team and Paul Anacone who's been with some players that have known how to do it at Wimbledon too. So that should help uh, before we kind of move on and segue here, Kenny, anybody that you're selling at Wimbledon and I know it's tough to say that when you have a prohibitive favorite and there's a lot of opportunity to bet against players, but who do you think uh, this sport night won't be for? Well, I think for one, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say, but Daniel Medvedev for me, honestly, like I just have not been very impressed with what we've seen on grass this season. Um, last year he was eight and three, but I look, I mean, 45 and 21 against all uh, at all competitions that includes exhibitions. He's certainly played on the surface enough, but I, I I don't feel like he has mastered the art of moving on this surface. Um, I, I again, you know, Roberto Batista Gut is is uh, a better grass court player than he is, and then that starts the conversation with, oh, how many people are better? I just the thing is, he's just not as dominant as he is on a hard court. I, yeah. I still think Daniel Medvedev on grass, Grasvedev is uh, good. <laughs> he's a good player, but. Um, you know, there's a reason why he's plus 1800 to win this. I, I'm certainly selling him. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm definitely also selling Casper Ruud. I mean, the odds would indicate there's there's already been plenty of selling going on with Casper Ruud, but been very open about how I just I don't think he even believes in himself that he can win on grass. Right. And uh, he's, he's happy yeah. with the results he's had if so far this year. Yeah. 
if we're looking at the odds, I mean, that's why it's hard to kind of do this. And someone else that's higher on there is Zverev. I don't really know grass-wise what his priorities are. He's starting to make some strides, but he does look fully back, which is good. I don't know that the pecking order is there. You mentioned Andy Murray. That's another one that all respect to him, but for him to be where he is in the in the <laughs> in the laws of the jungle i don't know that i agree with yeah, you know i actually i actually think asver can have a good tournament here i think he can be a good grass court mm. player obviously three and one this year uh the loss to bublik was tough but like i mean we talk about you know his movement has really always been i mean he has good movement for his size but he's not going to move like a demon or obviously right I, I think this is a good surface for him in theory so mm -hmm. i you know he can finish points quickly he's not going to make as many unforced errors so I think he could actually have a pretty good tournament. I know you didn't want to talk about guys who are not going to do well, but just I'm going to sneak this in here. Before okay. we on. Felix Ojealiasim, he's going to get not hot. I thought you were, that's not he's who I thought you were going to say. He's going to yeah. get hot eventually, Mitch. You know it. Yeah. He's the yeah. hottest player in the world. Hotter than Joe Mitch. Last, I, I agree. Last year. I, and I he agree with loves that. to play grass. We know he can play yeah. grass. I know he just lost a tough a, a tough match at, 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 to Andrew Rublev in an exhibition mm -hmm. Not really reading oh, into that. Don't, this yeah. guy has has plenty of grass court experience. He's done it at Wimbledon before, uh -huh. um, and I just uh -huh. he's, he's like eventually, right? Eventually, he's going to yeah. come back to us and and start winning matches. And I think so, it could happen here. So Zverev has never gotten past the fourth round. Done that twice. Maybe this is it. We'll see what the draw looks like. I do agree with Felix that there's potential there. This is where he would snap out of his funk. Last year drew a brutal draw with Cressy. Like that's about brutal. as bad as it gets. So, yeah, I think there's potential there. I thought you were actually going to go with your dark horse of uh, Bublik, Holly Champion. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Okay, I, I, good. I love Bublik. I tweet about Bublik all the time. But no, I mean, here's the thing. Yeah. You got to stop somewhere. Like, yeah, Taylor fair. Fritz winning a Grand Slam, you know, that's like, you're like, okay, well, that's probably not going to happen. Like, maybe. Like, yeah, he's good yeah. enough. He's top, he's top 10. Bublik is not going to yeah. win Wimbledon, I don't think. But I mean, he, you know, I mean, there could be yeah. some interesting bets, maybe stage of elimination or. Uh, maybe even a quarter, an out, a quarter outright. You know, maybe someone goes down. I don't know. But I, look, I mean, he's playing really well. Like, I, you know, he could. Yeah. He, he's a very good grass court player. We saw at Newport when he like just came on the yeah. door. Like, he's just always been good at this. Yeah. At this we gotta, we gotta set the market for if he does win Wimbledon. Will they give him an invite to the All England Club? I don't know. I don't know if I'd take that bet. But uh, the last oh, one I is. Think, I think yeah. they will. He's, he's. I think he's one of the best guys to have a beer yeah. with on tour. I think oh, I agree. I just don't know how they would view it, but I agree with that. Uh, the other two guys I just want to mention before we switch to the women. Kyrgios, I just don't know that he's match tough this year. So I, I'd say I'm selling him just in that regard. And then I'm more fascinated by what Holger is going to look like, Holger Runa on the uh, yeah. grass at Wimbledon, because I could see it, honestly, the highest variance of all the players we've talked about. He could make a deep run to the final four beyond, or he could crash out early. We just don't know what to expect from him. And I don't know that he's had the reps to give us anything. And you, you talk about a guy that would want to shorten points because, you know, stamina, right? Fatigue yeah. has been an issue for him. So I think certainly, I mean, I don't know about this year, but going forward, I think he could be a good grass court player. But yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm buying Curios. I don't, I, I think, I mean, look, you want to talk about not being matched up. He's only played one match this year and he lost all year. So obviously he's not, but I, I just think the guy's too good at this, at, at, at this surface. Like if he wins a few matches and I think he could win it just on the back of his serve and mm -hmm. his talent. You know, and his intimidation factor. And, you know, I mean, I saw his match against Yiving Wu. He was still managing to, like, generate break yeah. points just by guessing on the serve. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's going to face some pretty bad players the first two rounds. Yeah, I mean, he could – if he w picks Maybe. up a couple wins, I think he starts yeah. to feel it. But, yeah, I mean, look, I just think it's like yeah. you have to bet him at that price because if he's anywhere close to 100%, mm -hmm. he's, he's, I think he's going to go to the semis because this field is just so weak. <laughs> 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Wimbledon talk with Kenny Ducey here on Tennis Channel Inside In. I want to switch to the women because the market there is, I'd say, peculiar would be the word I want to go with. Uh, as it stands right now, Iga Fiontek, the French Open champ, is the favorite. This is you know, clearly her surface that she struggled the most on. And uh, I, was, I was staring at this, Kenny, with the thought of, okay, if it's not going to be Iga, who do you go with the defending champion? But the questions are, how do you back up the pressure? And even Rubakina's comments of, well, I mean, I believe that she's feeling it a little bit with saying she's not at 100%. And I don't want to say giving herself excuses, but saying, look, this is you know not to be expected. Sabalenka's lurking. Then there's a drop-off, and it goes beyond that. So starting at the top, we go Iga, Rabakina, Sabalenka. Do you think that's the right order, or should we shape-shift a little bit? I think Sabalenka should be in number two, frankly. I just don't think we've seen enough from Rabakina this season. I mean, she's she's barely played on, uh, you know, at all, really, over, since the French Open. Um, and, I, you know, you mentioned the illness issues. Like, I think there's that is, those are very real. And I think even if her body is at 100%, you know, the, she's just not in this, this kind of form that she was last year when she came into Wimbledon and won. I mean, now, you know, obviously she, she also sort of picked up some confidence along the way, but um, and she's such a dangerous player. I just think Sabalenka, and this is ironic because I was texting Zico when Sabalenka blew five, two at the French open. And we were like, man, we just, we can't bet Sabalenka again for like no, months. Like this is going to set her. her back. This is going to set her back for like a year, like mentally. And I, I, now I'm sitting here saying, I think she looks like the most attractive I- bet because I mean, looks just her power, you know, obviously her game is, is suited for this surface. Like yeah. She won the Australian Open, so I think there's there's fewer questions about her, her mental gaps. And Sviatek, I mean, Sviatek, I, I don't know even know what she's doing as the favorite, frankly. Like, I know she has so, to be because she's the best player in the world, but, like, come on. Yeah, can I get in there, too? Because I feel like the way she lost might have affected – I know it's a crazy concept in a lot of ways, but I feel like if she just loses kind of ho-humly, she might be the favorite or might be higher of the second favorite, clearly, in this tournament. But I think the way she lost that match is giving better. It's like, oh, here we go again. Is she going to, you know, have these moments? But the reality is she is the most powerful player on tour and she's consistently going deep into these events. And I would say that Rabakina to me, like I know she won the tournament last year. I probably would put her in the one spot by default, given the questions we have, Iga on grass and Sabalenka more so not playing last year. So she hasn't had a grass court season in two years. That would be the doubt that I would have, but it's, it's minimal. And, and to be clear, these are the three favorites. Like I'm not going to bring anybody in from outside those top three. Yeah. And, and Sabalink is also experienced enough at this point where, you know, form, obviously you see with the, the, the older players, like form is not always the most important thing on grass. I and mean, you can, you can come off an injury, you can come off of a loss and just step on and then win a tournament. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that you're correct in your assertion that Sabalenka's odds would probably be different if she didn't blow five two to Makova at the French Open. But I, I still, I mean, if I'm picking one of these three to win, I just think there's too many questions with Sviatek and too many questions with Rabakina. I'm going to give you two names. I, I don't okay, know if this, this is, is if this is your 
this is your role if you want to move on to other names. But I'm going to be two no, names that I'm looking at that are not they're not long shots, but they're sort of forgotten about names at this. I, I think they're forgotten about at this point. One is Anstuber. I think Anstuber is still a little still a little long for my liking. I mean, the fact that she's been probably one of the most reliable grass court players over the last three years. I know this season has not been the best for her. One and two, she lost to Georgie. She lost to Niemeyer. Not looking great, but um, you know, obviously she lost it. She's lost grass court matches in the lead up to Wimbledon before and had nice runs. And when you put it all together, she is 22 and five on grass over the last yeah. few years. She has a slice. She she obviously has Grand Slam experience. She has not won a Grand Slam, but she's gone to a final. The yeah. other person that I, I, no one is talking about that I think we do need to talk about is Beatrice Haddad Maya at plus 2,500. If you remember last year, she absolutely ripped through the grass. She won Nottingham. She won Birmingham. She, uh, you know, again, we talk about the quality of opponents. She beat like, okay, yeah, she's not beating top 10 players here, but um, I will say like, she's just, she picked up so many match wins on grass before she lost a tough one to Kvitova uh, at Eastburn. And then she lost in the first round to Kaya Huvan at, at, the, at Wimbledon. So, I think if she doesn't lose that match and she at least mm -hmm. just goes to the third round, like her odds are much lower here. And we saw what she could do at the French Open. You know, she's a very, very good player. I know she's kind of had fleeting form in 2023, but, uh, yeah. you know, I I, I I think she's a very solid player. I think if anyone is going to do it outside of the top three, it could be her. Love that with Jabor. I think that she's coming back from injury, and this is the perfect place to do that from, where we mentioned the taxing points and the fact that she's got results here in her style. I, I think that's good. Ed and Maya also showed a lot in the loss to Iga. That was playing oh, really? the best in the world on her favorite surface, and she was right there. So that was something to see. I mean, are we going to have to have the obligatory Kvitova talk because she's looking good on grass again? It's, you know, every couple of years she's in the mix. So that would be one that I would consider. And I will say, as, as we've been critical of maybe her odds and how the markets reflected her, I got to be positive with Coco Goff on this surface at 2,500 because I think that given the second tier players after the big three, I do find value in that. I think Coco in the right draw, the way she's played, and if the serve, I know it's a big hit, but if the serve holds up, I think there's some value there to go into the second week and you know quarterfinal and maybe beyond. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I mean, Coco Goff to me reminds me of Felix, I see on the men's side in a way, because I just feel like there's yeah. so much fatigue at this point. Like, yeah. you know, it, it, there's, it's almost a curse yeah. that you came onto the tour too early. Mm -hmm. Like Felix, you know, was, was here at 18 winning matches, winning challengers. And, and we were, you know, we're all just sort of tired of him at this point. He's still like, what is it? Like 23 or something yeah. like Coco Goff is still 19. Um, so I guess, again, similar situation, like maybe cursed by the fact that she had so much success so early that we're just sort of expecting a lot out of her at such a young age, but you know, there are going to be ups and downs. We know this from watching tennis, like mm -hmm. every single young player has got, yeah. is going to have inexcusable or inexplicable losses and slumps. And they're also going to look like the best player in the world for certain points. And during the U S open last year, it looked like Coco Goff to me was going to win that tournament. Like, you know, we're at the very least come very close uh, to beating Igis Fiatek along the way. She looked unbelievable, and she's 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 had it made a habit of looking good yeah. at Grand Slam. She made the quarterfinals at the French Open, and I know she lost to Alexandrova in Berlin. But I mean, you mentioned it like this is a good surface for her. She can hit the ball incredibly hard. Um, you know, she's not going to be taxed the way that she was taxed on on clay, and even even so, like has has proven that she can, she yeah. can you know withstand that type of tennis. So I agree with you. I think she's a very interesting player. She's kind of flying under the radar right now and i would definitely say she's like one of the five most likely yeah. players to win at this point 
And that's a good point. Her major losses in those runs, she's run into some buzzsaws. Garcia was playing amazing, took that into the tour finals. Iga at the French Open. So, yeah, her level's and pretty high. At the Australian <laughs> Open, but. Well, that's a high variance player and someone I would say, if you want to, if you want to throw five dollars at something that you're probably not going to get back, sure, Ostapenko. But well, any, electronic yeah. line calling for Ostapenko yeah. in that match as well. So I mean, there you go. That's yeah. that's, that's going to be advantage. That's going to be advantage, Elena. Well, Kenny, before we wrap this up, any deep, deep women's uh, odds that you might say worth a flyer? I, I have a couple that I would bring up, but I'm just curious if you have anybody deep that maybe not to win, but maybe a a bet and hedge situation if they do well. Yeah, I was actually looking yesterday at the long shots, just trying to. I was trying to. I was trying to sell myself on <laughs> Elena Svitolina because I didn't for. I didn't remember how bad she is on grass or how she's done nothing on grass because <laughs> obviously she, yeah. you know, used to be number three in the world. She had a good French Open, but next to her name in the odds was someone that's tantalized. That's Belinda Bencic, and you want to talk about fatigue with tennis prospects. Yeah. Belinda Bencic is still just twenty six, and it, it feels like she's been, Crazy. she's been playing for like ten years. Yeah, uh, but she has with that experience. She has played so many matches on grass, almost 100 matches on grass across all levels. She has just as much experience as almost everybody in this draw when it comes to playing grass. She's had success on the surface before. She has not won a match here since 2019, which is a little scary. But she's had a, a you know, and we haven't seen her since French Open, but she's had a decent season record-wise. She mm -hmm. obviously is very good. And that's one of those situations, again, where... You know, the draw could break wrong for her, like it did for Maria Sakharov at the French Open, where you have to just face mm -hmm. Makova, who ends up going to the final uh, in the first round. So, I mean, obviously that's a risk, but as long as she avoids like a couple of uh, tough landmines, I think Belinda Bencic just go for, could go far here. And then you have to talk about the obligatory Carolina Pliskova pick at plus 5,000. Yeah, of course, made the is. finals a couple of years ago at uh, at Wimbledon against Ash Barty yeah. back then. And obviously, you know, with her serve uh, and her her game, her height, her length, like just so good on this surface, you have to talk about her every mm -hmm. single time Wimbledon rolls around. So those are, I mean, they're around the same odds. I would say those are my two long shots that I'm, I'm liking. Took the words out of my mouth with, Plis mouth with Pliskova. She has zero momentum right now, but if anyone could get back into it with her serve on this surface from her finalists, it would be her. I would sprinkle... Yeah. yeah, I would also sprinkle a little on Donna Vekic, who had plus 4,200. I think she's battle tested her a level game can match with a lot of the top players so that would be one to consider as well i think she's turned a corner too so um, those are some good choices kenny Ducey. this is fun i know we're going to be talking on tennis bets a couple times next week and beyond but this is the wheelhouse right you got a grand slam in the summer i know you're a baseball guy too this is this is kind of what you live for like june july tennis and baseball Man, you're making you're making me like blush, or I don't know, get excited. I don't know what it is. I, yes, I mean, I agree with you. Like this is to me, it's this is the best part of the year. Like people, people, you know, crap on the summer, like oh, nothing's going on, no NBA in the summer, no NFL. I don't care. I care about the NBA and the NFL in the summer. Like, give me Wimbledon. Give me a, an ice cream cone, fireworks, Wimbledon, some day baseball. To me, that this and and then going out and playing some softball with the homies. That that is the pinnacle. Like it does mm -hmm. not get any better than this uh, i did not mention like a barbecue or a pool because i live in new york city but right. if you do live uh in the suburbs you can enjoy those things as well right. it's just a great time of year so enjoy it we will we will kenny Ducey. thanks for coming on tennis channel inside in thanks for having me as always Mitch. pleasure to talk to you of course That's it for this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Thanks again to both guests, Adnan Burke and Kenny Ducey. A reminder that Tennis Channel Inside In is on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. 
Just go to tennis.com slash podcast for the entire catalog of shows on our network. If you like Tennis Channel Inside In, we're on all your podcast platforms. Just go to Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe so you can get every episode automatically uploaded to your device, to your phone, your tablet, whatever. We're back next week with more talk on Tennis Channel Inside In about Wimbledon, the best time of the tennis year, the holy grail of the sport. A lot to break down, a lot of history to be made. For Kenny Ducey and Adnan Burke, my name is Mitch Michaels. Thank you for listening to Tennis Channel Inside In. We'll talk to you next week.